Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. episode 11 of Crime and Beauty. I am very excited about this week's episode and getting back into full focus. Again, last week was kind of crazy with the election and just so much going on. And now that there are an unfortunate increase in COVID cases, in a way, it's good for the podcast that I can just sort of stay home and focus on research and not be distracted. But again, very excited about my case this week. We are covering the death, the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. So first, before I get started, I wanted to mention my main source. Uh, It's a book by Jake Anderson called Gone at Midnight, the tragic true story behind the unsolved internet sensation. His sources include a police informant, a private investigator, an LAPD psychologist, retired deputy coroner, forensics expert, hotel tenants, a bouncer, and a family member of a a Cecil Hotel employee. And according to him, a portion of the proceeds from the book will go to the Lamb family, as well as mental health research and advocacy groups. That being said, I would not recommend this book. I think that it gets very inundated with um, tangents. He often inserts himself into the book. And the author, Jake Anderson, suffers from mental illness. And as you'll find out, Elisa did as well. Uh, However, it gets so distracting and discombobulated. I mean, he often talks about his relapses, his end of uh, the end of his relationship, um, in addition to, again, going off on these tangents about different crimes in LA and, you know, while interesting, it just generally lacks a lot of focus. However, he did include some interesting theories and, you know, the sources were pretty decent, but I, I just, you know, I think it could have been probably a third of the length. No, maybe two thirds of the book would probably be irrelevant information. So I don't know that I would recommend it, but again, if you want to sift through and find little nuggets about Elisa and the case, um, go for it. But again, it's just, it's not not the best. Um, additionally, I used, of course, like Wikipedia and internet research, um, and we'll talk about it, but there is a YouTube video that um, is pretty important to the case. So anyway, let's get started. January 31st, 2013, was the last known sighting of 21-year-old Chinese-Canadian student Elisa Lam. She was 5'4", weighed approximately 115 pounds, had black hair, brown eyes, and was fluent in both English and Cantonese. She had seemingly vanished from the Cecil Hotel, where she was vacationing alone. Her parents, David and Yena Lam, became alarmed because Elisa who normally contacted them daily, hadn't checked in with them on February 1st. She had also seemingly ceased social media posting and blog posting, something that she did with regularity. This prompted the Lambs, along with their eldest daughter, to fly from Vancouver to Los Angeles in the hopes of finding Elisa. 
Elisa had traveled to Los Angeles on what she called her West Coast tour. She had decided to stay at the infamous Cecil Hotel, now renamed Stay on Main, for four nights with plans to check out on February 1st. The Cecil Hotel was built in 1924 on the fashionable 600 block of Main Street by hotelier W.B. Hanner. It was designed in the Beaux-Arts style, which is an amalgam of French neoclassicism, Gothic, and Renaissance elements. Before the Great Depression, L.A. was considered the Wall Street of the West, but once the bubble of economic good times had burst, downtown L.A. descended into poverty, and the Cecil began to attract transients, those with criminal intent, and devastated souls that would take their own lives on the property. The more upscale clientele opted for the Biltmore or the Alexandria. Cecil began a transformation into a seedy, cursed establishment. The earliest confirmed suicide at the Cecil occurred on November 19, 1931, when a 46-year-old named W.K. Norton checked in under an alias and then proceeded to poison himself. There have since been several grisly suicides by gunshot, jumping, slit wrists, and more. The Cecil Hotel also served as the residence for other transients, low-income locals, sex offenders, and even serial killers Richard Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker, and Jack Unterweger, the Austrian ghoul, active in the 1980s and the 1990s, respectively. To stay at the Cecil, it costs between $64 and $95 per night, the cheapest possible lodging in town. It was also a few short blocks away from Skid Row. Skid Row refers to an area of a city where people live who are, quote, on the skids, and it's derived from a logging term. Loggers would transport their logs to a nearby river by sliding them down roads made from greased skids. Loggers who had accompanied the load to the bottom of the road would wait there for transportation back up the hill to the logging camp. By extension, the term began to be used for places where people with no money and nothing to do gathered, becoming the generic term in English-speaking North America for a depressed street in the city. Six days after Elisa was reported missing, Detective Walter Teague from LAPD's Robbery and Homicides Division led a press conference. The last confirmed sighting of Elisa was by hotel employees. She had been in the hotel lobby with a bag full of gifts for her family from the last bookstore. Numerous LAPD teams were deployed to search the hotel with canine units. This initial search lasted several days, but yielded no clues. A second search was conducted, and again, there was no sign of Elisa or any indication as to where she might be. According to the LA Missing Persons Unit, 3,900 people go missing each year, with 80% being found. LAPD lists the following as the top reasons as to why people go missing. Mental illness, substance abuse, credit issues, depression, domestic violence, and marital problems. At the time of her disappearance, LAPD was very focused on the Christopher Dorner manhunt. He was a disgruntled former police officer rampaging against the department. He released a manifesto declaring war on the LAPD on February 3rd, two days after Elisa was reported missing. Now before we go further in the story, let's talk a little bit more about Elisa. Elisa went to a small, competitive high school. She was an excellent student, taking 12th grade courses in 8th grade. 
She loved to read and counted Lois Lowry, Ray Bradbury, and Margaret Atwood as amongst her favorite authors. She, of course, loved The Great Gatsby, Hamlet, Catcher in the Rye, and more. She participated in student council, volleyball, and cross-country running. In addition to her more academic pursuits, she blogged about popular culture and fashion with great fervor. But at the same time, she seemed to have an issue with self-promotion and commercialism. Her high school had a large Asian population, and yet she felt alone and often betrayed by her friends that ditched her for cooler ones. Unlike her friends, she did not want to party or drink. The summer before 12th grade, she went on a five-week explorer program in Quebec, where she realized how difficult it was for her to meet and connect with people. At some point, she chose to drop cross-country to focus on volleyball, a decision she would regret because she was much better at cross-country and preferred the team and the coach. She alleged that at the end of the season, her volleyball coach, whom she called a, quote, dickhead, told her he felt guilty for letting the more popular girls play and that she had essentially wasted her time on the volleyball team. On her blog, Ether Fields, she wrote, quote, I believe the biggest reason why I got depressed was because I stopped running in my last year of high school. Up until that point, I was on the cross-country and track and field team. Mind you, I wasn't a very good runner, but I did it. I lacked the discipline to actually train. And now I am still lacking the discipline to run or do any sport of sort. From her blog and social media platforms, particularly her Tumblr account, it's clear Elisa suffered from depression and bipolar disorder. She also references taking medication for her depression starting in her late teens. At one point, she was deeply affected by her puppy's death after it had been hit by a car and from witnessing her grandfather pass away on a respirator and a dialysis machine. At one point, she was hospitalized, writing in her blog that she was, quote, in a depressing hospital color-painted place with bad food and donated furniture, an antiquated TV, and incomplete puzzles. It reeks of hopelessness. Here are a few other quotes from her social media platforms that reveal a lot about Elisa. Quote, I am pro at playing the what-if game and being disappointed in people. There is no physical manifestation of my, quote, illness. Would I become psychotic and want to off myself? I know I wouldn't do anything rash like actually jump off a bridge. I'm too much of a coward. Instead, I'll just lie in my bed and let the days pass by. That's my physical manifestation sleeping for days in bed. On November 11, 2011, she wrote on Tumblr, quote, suicide is not an option for me, but in the last 96 hours, I have considered it to be a possibility multiple times. I'm just that disappointed with the human race. Bipolar disorder can induce psychosis, including hallucinations and delusion. Elisa also had frequent hypomanic episodes, not sleeping for days until she eventually crashed. In December 2011, she withdrew from two college courses. She had overslept one day and missed an exam that was 10% of her grade. The previous nights, she barely slept at all. On January 27, 2012, about a year before she went missing, she wrote, quote, I feel I am wasting my time compared to my fellow peers. I had a relapse at the start of the term and had to drop two of the three courses I was taking. Now I am down to one course and have missed three weeks of classes since my sleeping pattern is completely reversed. I'm a bit defeated, for I have far too much free time and no one to spend time with. I'm checking emails, blog lovin', Facebook, and Tumblr all the time, 
and even jumped into the Twitter foray. I have a short attention span and I'm avoiding writing the three papers I owe this course. It's two terms. I can text friends who are busy with either school or work, but I have neither of these things going for me. I've started a Photoshop course, but it's only five classes, so perhaps I'm learning some sort of useful skill. Other than that, I have very little going on in my life, which is disappointing. I'm very disappointed in myself for breaking down during the term, forcing me to withdraw from courses. I've been at university for three years, and I've only managed to complete three courses. That means I've been a first year for three years, and this September it will be the fourth year because I require 30 credits in order for a second year status. I'm trying to stay away from Tumblr and blog loving and get away from all the fashion frivolity that has become the huge distraction from facing some responsibilities, but I feel so utterly directionless and lost. Ah, these excuses and past disappointments do more to stop me than anything else. When I cannot fall asleep at night, I'm gripped with the fear that my transcript must be a nightmare. Multiple fails and withdrawals. The three years with only three courses completed cannot look good if I intend to continue on to graduate school. I hate myself for not being able to attend one class, and I feel it is very disrespectful to my professor who has been so kind and understanding. Instead, I am left to wander the streets downtown looking at frivolous things like clothing, but being broke, I cannot buy anything and I feel so empty. What is the purpose of owning a nicely curated closet if there's no place to wear it to? What is the purpose of reading countless articles if there is no one to discuss it with? As much as I do like spending time with myself, when you are alone for so many days, it is not healthy. I know I must start exercising, but excuses. It is a weariness that keeps me at a standstill. Elisa's Tumblr account called Nouvelle Nouveau continued updating for months after her disappearance, likely due to an automatic posting option, but it was eerie nonetheless. It had a variety of photographs, GIFs, images, and quotes. There were some by Kurt Vonnegut from The Great Gatsby and Glorious Bastards and some Harry Potter references. It's clear she viewed this platform almost as a friend. She even said it was a solace to her woes. She said she was, quote, using this Tumblr as a platform to record my progress to get life in order and stop lying in bed, letting the depression take over my life. Her last post on Tumblr was on January 29th and said, quote, have arrived in Lawland, and there is a monstrosity of a building next to the place I'm staying. When I say monstrosity, mind you, I'm saying as in gaudy, but then again, it was built in 1928, hence the Art Deco theme. So yes, it is classy, but then since it's LA, it went on crack. Fairly certain this is where Baz Luhrmann needed to film, needs to film, fairly certain this is where Baz Luhrmann needs to film The Great Gatsby. Prior to these posts, she focused on her, quote, West Coast tour, including San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Cruz, and San Francisco. On February 15th, after another week with no sign of Elisa, the LAPD released a video of the last known sighting of her taken in one of the Cecil's elevators by a video surveillance camera on February 1st. The video drew worldwide interest in the case due to Elisa's strange behavior and has since been ex extensively analyzed and discussed. The surveillance footage occurs in one of the Cecil's elevators on the 14th floor. It's technically the 13th floor, but they don't have a 13th floor due to superstitions, and this is not an uncommon practice for other hotels. To this day, the video, which you can easily search on YouTube, intrigues, frightens, and puzzles viewers. It has been the cause of multitudes of conspiracy theories. 
I highly recommend watching the video yourself. It's not very long at all. But here is a brief summary of the video. Elisa walks in, and she's wearing black gym shorts that look like they belong to a male, a red hoodie, and sandals. She turns and presses multiple buttons in the elevator. Then she stands back in the corner and peeks out, looks both ways, then goes back into the elevator, backing into another corner. She peeks out the doorway again, looks to the left, and hops out, then does a sort of box step to the left. Then she steps back in, then out, lifts her arm. She's almost entirely out of the frame at this point, but you can see the side of her shorts and her elbow, lifted as if her hand is behind her head. She walks back in, steadying herself with both hands at the doorway. Again, she presses multiple elevator buttons. She tucks her hair behind her ear, and then it looks like she's talking to somebody. She waves her arms almost like she is dog paddling. She makes other strange hand gestures while slightly bending her knees. Then she leaves the frame permanently. The video was reposted widely, including on the Chinese video sharing site, Yuku, where it got 3 million views and 40,000 comments in the first 10 days. Like me, many of the commentators found it unsettling to watch. In February, tap water at the CISO Hotel was thick, brown, red sludge. Multiple guests lodged a formal complaint with management. Some complained of the low water pressure. Others said it had a, quote, funny, sweet, disgusting taste. Others said that what was coming through the faucet was, quote, dark water. Amy Price, the hotel manager, initially thought the problem was just the age of the building, but the increasing complaints put her on edge, so she finally dispatched Santiago Lopez, a maintenance worker, to check the hotel's water cisterns on the roof. He'd been working for the Cecil for years. He wondered that the discolored water might be as a result of rust deposits in the pipes. On February 19th, using a key, he opened the door on the 15th floor, which accessed the rooftop. There was an alarm, supposedly, to this door that, if triggered, would sound on the 14th and 15th floors. But in his three years, he had never heard the alarm triggered. The door was the only way to the Cecil's rooftop, besides the emergency fire escapes. On this day, the alarm was supposedly in working condition when he deactivated it to investigate the four 1,000-gallon, 10-foot-tall, 6-foot-wide water cisterns. Each cistern sat on a 4-foot platform. Lopez climbed the ladder to the first platform and had to, quote, slither between the tanks and plumbing equipment, which brought him to the second ladder, which finally brought him to the top of the tank. He later testified that the 18 by 18 inch lid was open, much to his confusion. Looking down through the opening, something caught his eye. The color red and the body of a woman floating face up on the surface. According to Lopez, her left eye was bulging and beside her floated her clothing, including a red hoodie. LAPD received a call from Cecil's management shortly after 10 a.m. that morning. Captain Jamie Moore from the fire department received a separate call about the discovery of a body. Moore said the opening of the cistern was too small for the equipment necessary in removing the body, so the tank was drained and cut open from the side using lasers. Later that day, her parents confirmed it was Elisa Lamb. Senior criminalist Mark Shushart examined Elisa's body. It was in a state of advanced decomposition. Her face, abdomen, and her upper legs were bloated and discolored. Amongst her clothing, which included her red hoodie and pair of men's shorts, were covered in a, quote, sand-like particulate, and amongst those was her wristwatch and her hotel key card. It was evident that she'd been there for days. 
Notably, there was no sign of her glasses. It would take another six months before the full autopsy and toxicology reports were released. CISO hotel tenants had been bathing, brushing their teeth, and drinking corpse water. A British tourist named Mr. Baugh said, quote, The moment we found out, we felt a bit sick to the stomach, quite literally, especially having drank the water. We're not well mentally. Fifty-five guests vacated the hotel while fifteen stayed. Those that stayed received bottled water from the hotel. The preliminary autopsy, written on February 27th, did not yield enough information for L.A. County Assistant Chief Coroner Ed Winter to determine the cause of death. There were no signs of external injuries or trauma to her neck. There were no wrist scars or evidence of self-harm. Her organs appeared normal and there was no trauma to her genitals, though she did have anal bleeding as a result of a prolapse, which can occur when bacteria creates gas that expands the internal organs. She did have secretions in her respiratory passages with a brownish mucus, and her chest pleural cavities contained dark brown fluid. Her abdominal cavities did not. Her toxicology report showed two antidepressants, an antipsychotic, and a mood stabilizer, but she had no illicit drugs or alcohol in her system. However, the report did not test for date rape drugs like Rufi's, GHB, or ketamine. It was June 19th when forensic pathologist Yulei Wang finally signed off on the cause of death. It went public two days later. Quote, The decedent died as a result of drowning. A complete autopsy examination showed no sign of trauma and toxicology did not show acute drug or alcohol intoxication. Decedent had a history of bipolar disorder for which she was prescribed medication. Toxicology studies were performed for presence of these drugs. However, quantitation in the blood was not performed due to limited sample availability. Therefore, interpretation is limited. Police investigation did not show evidence of foul play. A full review of these circumstances of the case and appropriate consultation do not support intent to harm oneself. The manner of death is classified as accident. From the anatomic findings and pertinent history, death was ascribed to drowning. Other conditions contributing but not related to the cause of death, bipolar disorder. Considering the suspicious and bizarre circumstances surrounding Elise's disappearance and death, a potential murder investigation was launched. Detectives Wallace Tunnell, whose son Brian was murdered in 2007 when a gang member misinterpreted his Houston Astros cap for a rival gang, and Greg Stearns, who cracked the Stephanie Lazarus Sherry Masmussen case that I covered in episode 3, were assigned to the case. Suddenly, LAPD's assertions that they had not once but twice searched every nook and cranny of the Cecil with a canine unit seemed relatively dubious because no, at no point had they caught Elisa's scent on the rooftop. They also claimed not to have discovered any fingerprints. The maintenance worker, Santiago Lopez, who discovered Elisa's body, said the lid was open. But police had said it had been closed when they conducted their searches. The hotel's chief engineer, Pedro Tovar, confirmed four methods of accessing the roof without triggering the alarm. Three fire escapes connected to interior doors and a staircase attached to the 14th floor. Despite this, he also testified that these were difficult methods and that the tanks were not easy to access. If she'd done this herself without the aid of her glasses, she would have had to climb the ladder, then the platform, then the ladder to the top of the cistern, open the hatch, remove her clothes, but jump in with them. One of the dominant theories is that Elisa was murdered by a tenant, or more likely a hotel employee. 
they could have thrown her into the cistern, though the lack of bruising suggests that if she had been killed, she'd been killed outside of the cistern. But how would someone have been able to carry her body to reach the tanks on the rooftop without any witnesses, if it was so difficult? Some viewers of the Elisa video argued that the video had been tampered with before being made public. Besides the obscuring of the timestamp, they claimed, parts had been slowed down, and nearly a minute of footage had been discreetly removed. This could have been done simply to protect the identity of someone who otherwise would be in the video but had little or nothing to do with the case, or to conceal evidence if Lamb's disappearance and death had been the result of a criminal act. Apparently, there was other surveillance footage of Elisa that was never released. LAPD also avoided discussing her cell phone and information yielded from that source. We know that she was using it to communicate prior to her death. Detective Wallace Tunnell also later told lawyers, quote, I think she went through the door, likely referring to the 14th floor door leading up to the rooftop that had the alarm. That would possibly suggest she went with an employee who had access because the alarm was never sounded. Also, on her autopsy report, Elisa's cause of death was initially marked, quote, could not be determined on the medical report and was scratched out, initialed, and dated. Then, the box next to, quote, accident was marked, initialed, and dated between June 19th and June 21st. Coroners can be worried about antagonizing local community stakeholders who might badmouth them. According to a Washington Post article titled, It's Time to Abolish the Coroner, and heavily focused on California, said, quote, sometimes a sheriff or prosecutor may not want to deal with another unsolved murder and might pressure a coroner to rule an obvious homicide to be an accident, a suicide, or a natural death. In California, once a death is determined to be accidental or natural, 41 out of 58 counties will not have an investigation. Why was there no rape kit or a test for date rape drugs? There was also no indication in the autopsy as to whether a fingernail kit was processed, and if so, what the results were. Jake Anderson, the author of Gone at Midnight, spoke to Deputy Coroner Fred Corral, who said rape kit evidence was actually gathered, but the LAPD had not processed it. According to Dr. John Hezer wrote, owner and director of Path Lab Services,